So his point is, yes, we need to be evangelizing, but if we don't care for those who are saved, well, then we're committing suicide. We've got to actually grow. So do you all think it's true that if we neglect either evangelism or edification, it will in the long term harm the church local? And if so, what might be some effects from that? focus on evangelism where it's getting people saved but not to the equipping part those new believers that go out in the world if when they're about to give an answer for the reason they hope they have they got I don't know I was just told that you'd be born again okay edification and keeping people accountable um, you know Satan works in horrible ways C.S. Lewis talks about let them pray their deceitful prayers, and so that can happen to us as well. We let the sins go unchallenged. Okay. Well, what might be other issues that can arise if we only focus on one of these good things, but we make it the sole purpose of our church? Yeah. All right, well, two more opening questions, then we'll dive into what the New Testament says. But self-reflection, and some may not be able to answer this as much because they're not here, but as we think about our church, morning, Danny, uh, which do you think we tend to lean more towards, evangelism or edification? Us or in general? <laughs> our church in general. Our church edification. Okay. I would even say that in general. I, I was going to say the opposite. I feel like as the church in general, it's evangelism. So many churches are, go out and get them saved, and then, okay, we're done. Yeah, I heard one. Keep coming, but. I heard one famous preacher, well, I wouldn't even call a preacher, say, you know, we're here about evangelizing laws, and we want that, you know, doctrine stuff and that being put. Uh, discipleship stuff, go to another church. On the flip side, there's churches, and we can fall into this, that we're so busy doing our studies and diving into doctrine that we wouldn't deny the importance of evangelism, but are we practically doing it? You know, because we, we are, know our doctrine enough to know we should never say we shouldn't evangelize. That's how well we know our doctrine. <laughs> yeah. But... Doing it and getting out, you know, that's important. So, one more question, then we're going to dive into this. When people hear the term evangelism, they hear different things. So we can be talking past each other. What does evangelism mean? Or just off the cuff, you hear the word evangelism, you hear he's an evangelist, she's an evangelist, what comes to your mind? And there's no right or wrong. Actually, the more people who would share, the better, so we can get a feel for what we're hearing. Billy Graham, okay. Revival. Revivals. Street preacher. Okay, street preacher. 
Over here, I need some. Okay. All right, people who go to churches. Anyone else? What's an evangelist or evangelism? Okay. Okay. All right, with that in mind, uh, let's turn and answer the question, what is evangelism? You can see on your page there, we're going to look at three verses. Talk, they talk about what an evangelist is. Um, then we'll kind of summarize it. There's a summary on your page. We'll then look at what evangelism is not, because there's a lot of misconceptions of what evangelism is. And then we'll end today by looking at who is called to evangelize. And then next week, we're going to look at some specific ways we as a church evangelize and we as individuals evangelize. So this is a two-part series. Um, but first, Corbin, could you read for us 1 Corinthians 4, 1? Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. All right, now we hear of stewardess. That's someone on a plane who brings you really small bags of peanuts. And um, maybe they also give you a drink halfway through. But that a steward's a much more than that. What's a steward? Anyone familiar with what that term means? Someone who cares for something, takes care of it. Okay, but whose is it? Someone the, someone else yeah, they, a steward thing. takes care of someone else's possessions. He is a steward, a servant of Christ, and a steward of the mysteries of God. So that means, what is he supposed to do? Let's just change the analogy. Let's say, you know, North Texas, you're a steward of a ranch. What is your job to do with that ranch? Take care of it as if it was your own. Okay. Be faithful to care for it. And how should you do that? By doing the duties that require it in order. Yeah, and in line with what the ranch owner wants. If you want sheep and he wants cows, well, then you can either go to another ranch... Or you can keep doing cows, but you're working in line with what he is saying. And so here, Paul is a steward of the mysteries of God or of the message of God. So what does this mean about evangelism or ministry? We're, call, we're not called to invent a great message, but instead we share the message that's already given to us. So what that means for evangelism is our goal is just to straightforwardly tell what's in God's word. You know, we don't come up with ideas. Now, we might say it creatively, or we might say it in a way that helps people understand it, but the message comes from right here, because we are stewards of God's Word. Um, so we also realize that sometimes that means we have to share things that people don't want to hear, that they're alienated from God, that they're rebels. Well... If we were stewards, uh, if it was our Bible, maybe we wouldn't put that. Well, if people won't like that, I'll drive them away. So, well, our role is not to determine what kind of ranch we want. If you're going to be God's servant, you declare what he says to declare. All right, so a steward helps us see that we must be faithful to the content of the gospel message. All right, First Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Sarah, when you get there, could you read that for us? First Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. Actually, we're, since we had some other thing, things, why don't you just jump to verse 7? That'd be fine. <coughs> For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I'm telling you the truth, I am not. A preacher, 
All right, so verses 1 through 7, he's talking about prayers. He's talking about the, that God desires all people to be saved, that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He gave himself to be a ransom. And then he says he is a herald or preacher of that message. Now, we don't have these too much anymore, but what is a herald? Go back in your books you've read. What would a herald do in former times? Okay, make announcements, declare news. Uh, if you're coming to town and you're the king, how do you want the herald to present that you're coming into town? With horns, trumpets. Okay. Have any of you all seen the Knight's Tale? Yes. <laughs> like that guy, Jeffrey Chaucer. Uh, not recommending movies, just funny part in there. <laughs> Nonetheless, there he's excited, joyful. You, if the herald's like, King's here, just want to let you know, you'd be out of your job. Because a herald, hopefully they get that job because they want it. And then they loudly, joyfully tell the message, the king is here. And so the word a herald shows us that we get to joyfully proclaim the message. That's our job, not, okay, well, it's our job. We've got to do this. No, a herald joyfully proclaims what is in God's word. Yes, it's costly. You know, that's part of not changing the content. We've got to be honest. But that cost also has rewards. We're given a new life. There's complete forgiveness of sins. There's total acceptance by God as we're adopted into His family. We're made co-heirs with Christ. We're imparted with the Holy Spirit. So we don't just tell the bad news. We don't just tell the good news. We tell it all and we get to tell it joyfully. Well, turn, third, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16-21. And uh, by the way, I got all these three from a man named J.I. Packer. He wrote a book on evangelism. So it's not like I noted these three things. Um, three titles that Paul uses for his ministry and I think apply to ours, but we'll get to that later. 2 Corinthians 5, Chris, could you read verses 16 through 21? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we regarded Christ, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, through whom, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting, uh, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what's the word or title Paul uses for his ministry in there? It's also on your notes. You can cheat. <laughs> well, that's what the what he proclaims, reconciliation. But he's a, or an, ambassador. So what's an ambassador? Okay, representative. Yeah, and again, so what might be some implications from that? He's, in, he's entrusted with a message. Yeah. You know, the ambassador might have a completely different view of what should be happening. It's not his role to declare that. He may tell it back to his country, say, look, I think we should be doing different. But when he goes to talk to the other country, 
Yes. He represents the message that whoever, Congress, President, whatever, wants to be get across. And God is here speaking through his ambassadors and noticing that he makes an appeal to us. You know, he's wanting, he's desiring. He says in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ. And so here the ambassadors are seeing God's ambassadors are urgently calling people. You know, God's message is not just, we'll tell them the facts and that's it. It's some cold, here, let me tell you these facts, okay? No, we joyfully in here, he's imploring, urgently calling. So I think here in 2 Corinthians 5, we see that an ambassador is telling us we must urgently call people to be reconciled to God. Um, and in that, in our summary, we'll see this is also calling for a response. Evangelism, as we'll see, is not just sharing facts, it's also calling for a response. Now, we gave three metaphors. Did any of those help you understand the role of an evangelist better? Do we maybe emphasize or minimize some of those more than others? A couple different questions there. We're going to get to that here in just two minutes. Okay. <laughs> I think stewards is uh, one that's not emphasized enough because we are steward. You know, we all, when we talk about stewardship, what's the one thing that comes up? Money. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't think about stewardship as, you know, God's given us this message. We'd be good stewards of it. That's why we have to proclaim it faithfully and not um, our own message. Yeah, we may have, unlike uh ambassador of a country, we may have different viewpoints, but we can't represent, we do represent the message of that country. But with God's message, you know, our viewpoints are supposed to be viewpoints from the Bible, not our own personal viewpoints. Yeah. Sarah, you're going to say something? Yeah, just, I don't think we often talk about the fact that we're, we don't have any stake in this, in that it's not our message, you know, that we're not following our own rules or desires. Now, so let's summarize what we said. This will be real quick, and then we'll look at what evangelism is not, and then focus on who does this. Uh, so on the middle of your page, you may see this italicized statement. Evangelism is telling the gospel of Jesus with the aim of proper response. Now, I say first telling because the gospel is good news, and news has to be declared. Um, we'll focus some more next week on how our actions even deeds of mercy can be helpful in w making people receptive to the gospel but i can't on some way act out the gospel you know needs to be told declared the message of what god has done second we got to understand that it's the telling of the gospel of jesus what's the gospel of jesus well first it talks about god who made a perfect world which he made us to joyfully submit to him. But then there's us who are made in God's image, who reject him and try to rule our own lives. So now we're alienated from God and under his curse. So third, Christ, God's son, came as a human. He lived the perfect life of submission to his father. And then he established his kingdom by taking the curse for us, sin and death. And so then that leads to the end of our definition with the aim of proper response. So what's the proper response? Turning from our sin, it's repentance. Turning to Christ, that's faith. Faith and repentance. 
That's the proper response. We trust who he is, what he did for us, and we seek to follow him. You know, the following him is not what saves us. It shows us that we're saved. And so that's a brief summary of what evangelism is. Now, let's answer. So what is evangelism not? First, evangelism is not a sales pitch. I don't know if you can fit all this in there. Manipulation or brainwashing. So sales pitch, manipulation, or brainwashing, but an honest presentation of facts. You've probably all interacted with a salesman who tells you everything wonderful about their product, but they don't tell you any of the bad things. They don't tell you, well, actually, if you went and bought this company, they're a little better in this aspect. Well, we're called to tell the whole message. What's good, what's bad. Um, Mark Dever writes, we don't want people to become Christians because it will reduce their stress. We want them to become Christians because they know they need to repent of their sins. Believe in Jesus Christ and joyfully take up their cross and follow him for the glory of God. And so we're not just salesmen in the worst sense of the word. Um, second, evangelism is not, it's on the back of your page, coercion. Actually, skipped one. Uh, you got to squeeze that one in. Evangelism is not coercion. For the call is not just for something external, it's internal. You, know, you can convert to Islam with a sword at your throat going, okay, I believe in Allah, whatever you have to say. To become a Christian, it's not just what you say with your lips. Well, I'm not denying if you confess with your lips, Jesus Lord. Well, the point is, has to be true inside. That's why Jesus says you have to be born again. He didn't say, well, you have to say this prayer, which we do say prayers and that can be evidence. But he's calling Christianity. You can't be coerced into it. You have to desire and be made a new creation. Um, so we're pausing real quickly. How can evangelism sometimes be seen as those? It can be seen as manipulation or sales or coercion. It's the way it's presented. Okay. High pressure. High pressure. Yeah. Like getting a bunch of kids together in a classroom and, you know, evangelizing, witnessing, trying to get these children uh, converted to, to follow our Lord, which we know is a great thing. But, you know, uh, and maybe little Johnny raises his hand and says, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. And the teacher says, that's awesome. And, and then it becomes the objective to, man, before they move on to the next class, I'm going to get all the children in here converted, you know, at least say in this prayer. Yeah. And I would caution against that. <laughs> caution against that. That's that's like if they'll they'll hear things like you need to do this. They'll hear things like if you've never done this, then raise your hand and say this prayer. Is that manipulation? Is that coercion? I would tend to think it often has been done that way. Maybe not every person, but yeah, I would I would have share the same concerns. You know, you get a child young enough, and you can talk about hell and scare any little kid to, what do I have to do? Yes, yes I, I will repeat after you, whatever. That place sounds bad. But that doesn't mean you've had your heart changed. It doesn't mean you're a new creation. Um, well, let's go on because we have some other things. Evangelism 
is not, boy, I skipped a lot of these. Evangelism is not closed-minded, narrow, or intolerant. Another one, squeeze on your page. All right, so sometimes people get this idea, well, look, sharing your faith, that is so intolerant. You're saying that I'm wrong and you're right. However, we have to realize and help them to see they're making the same claim. You know, Tim Keller's helpful and stuff like this. He says, if you say to me, don't evangelize, that is actually evangelizing me into your Western, white, individualistic, privatized understanding of religion. It's not narrow to make an exclusive truth claim because everybody makes an exclusive truth claim. Everybody has a take on reality. Everybody thinks the world would be better if those people over there adopted mine. Everybody. Narrowness, he writes, is not the content of a truth claim. Narrowness is our attitude toward the people who don't share our point of view. So we can, when people say, look, you shouldn't evangelize. You don't know that what you're saying is true. What do they want you to do? Okay, well, and practically they want you to... Be narrow-minded. <laughs> what do they want you to do right then? They want you to stop. Because now you have a new viewpoint. And your new viewpoint is that in this world, we really can't know the truth. So you've actually been evangelized into their way of viewing the world. So as you're evangelizing them, they're doing the same thing. Now, often maybe what they're reacting against is the manipulation, coercion, high-pressure revivals or whatever. And in that sense, okay, yes, that's maybe not... We would even we've said it's not a very good thing to do. But... To say that all evangelism is intolerant just doesn't understand what everyone's doing all the time. Uh, another one. Evangelism. Here we go. We finally get to the blanks. Evangelism is not having someone be converted, though we aim for it. You know, the goal is to faithfully share who God is, what our condition is, how Christ has made the way to fix that, how we properly respond. But... Fruit, fruitfulness, fruit from that is not our role. That's God's role. Uh, J.I. Packer writes, Evangelism is man's work, but the giving of faith is God's. Now, we should care. If we are not seeing fruit evangelistically, we don't just go, well, God's in control. And that's why we've tried to encourage our church a few times to fast and pray. God, would you open people's hearts through our lives as we go out in various ways, as we Share the good news. If you look through the New Testament, Paul desperately, he implores people. He wants them to be saved. He doesn't just go, well, since God's in control, you know, that's, that's all right. No, I did my job. You know, it burdened him. It should burden us. We've shared this quote a few times, so hopefully it's not getting old, but I think it's helpful. C.H. Spurgeon writes, To have no conversions is a very dreadful thing, but to be at ease without seeing conversions is at all times more dreadful far. He continues, I could bear a suspension in the increase of the church, I think, with some degree of peace of mind if I found all the members distressed and disturbed about it. But if we should ever come to this pass, God grant we may never may, that we shall see no conversions, and yet shall all of us say, Still, our place is well attended. There are such and such persons who come. We ourselves are fed with spiritual food, and therefore all is well. I say, if it ever comes to that, it will be a thing to mourn over, both by day and night, for it will be a token that the Spirit of God has for a while forsaken us. 
Oh, that the churches in London, where the congregations are but small, and where the conversions are but few, would be clothed in sackcloth and cast ashes upon their heads. Oh, that we would proclaim a day of fasting and humble ourselves before the Lord in the bitterness of our souls. For when it comes to this, Jehovah's hand would turn towards them in bounty, and they would soon become the joyful mothers of children. As long as a church is satisfied to be barren, she shall be barren. But when she cries out in the anguish of her spirit, then shall Jehovah remember her. He hears the cries of his people. But when she will not cry, but is at ease in desolate circumstances, then the desolation shall continue and the sorrows be multiplied. It's a rather long quote, but I think it's convicting to me and challenging. Are we okay? Like we said earlier, we lean more towards edification. Well, the doctrine's good. We sing the good songs here. Everything's well, you know, maybe we haven't seen anyone say, but look, they know their doctrine better than they did last year. Are we burdened going? We want both. We want to be able to say they know their Bible better. And here's someone who didn't even know what a Bible was. Didn't know the difference between a chapter, a verse, book in the Bible a year ago. Now they know Christ and they're growing. You know, we should be burdened for both. Uh, a few more. Evangelism is not a specific approach. I think that's important because oftentimes people, when they hear evangelism, they think of street preaching, going door to door, meeting on Tuesday night for visitation, revival meetings. Those are all fine. Those are all forms of evangelism, but that's not the sum total of it. Uh, evangelism is not merely sharing your personal testimony. It can be a great thing to do. But, and you can share, you can evangelize through your personal testimony, but you can share it and not be calling people to faith yourself. Uh, evangelism is not merely apologetics. We need to defend the faith. We need to do that. But, again, defending the faith, though as good as it is, is, is not evangelism. It could be an opportunity, just like sharing your personal testimony. Uh, evangelism is not Helping the poor doing good deeds. You know, those are the free fruits of someone being saved and can encourage someone to want to know about the Savior, but they aren't evangelism itself. All right. So reflecting, and then we'll dive into the last section, who's called to evangelism. What might be other things you would add or subtract to what evangelism is or is not? Okay. What's the picture of a disciple maker in your head? Someone who is encouraging, uh, leading, praying with someone for further sanctification. Okay. Um, and then also, we, if it's an evangelist, I'd also say towards salvation in the first place, too. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I think so. Are we putting words in your mouth, Danny? Go ahead. Well, who is called to evangelism? Let's uh, turn to Isaiah 43, 8-13. David, could you read that for us? And 
we'll have some view, few other verses here. Chris, would you turn to Acts 1.8? So Isaiah 43, and we'll see this truth in the Old and New Testament. Isaiah 43, 8-13. David, when you get there, if you could read that, read that for us. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and he can turn it back. All right, twice, twice in there it said, you are my witnesses. And then we hear the same thing, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, now, little grammar review here. What's the difference between... Uh, imperative sentence in a declarative sentence. All right, so imperative is a command, something to do. Declarative is a statement of your being person or something. If I had an essentials tutor here, I could get that answered. Um, you are my witnesses. Is that a command? Is that imperative or is that a declarative sentence? So he doesn't command us here. He does command us to evangelize. Don't hear me wrong. But here, he doesn't declare, go be witnesses. He says, you are. You are witnesses. It would be like someone saying to me, Jeremy, go be a husband. I am a husband. I can be a bad husband. I can be a good husband. I can be an unfaithful husband. I can be a faithful husband. But I can't stop being a husband. We are, all of us, are God's witnesses. You can be an unfaithful witness and not share. You can be a faithful witness and share. You can be a bad witness, a good witness, but there's no point where you can say, I'm no longer a witness for Christ. You know, our lack of speaking is a witness. Our speaking is a witness. So every person is a witness. John Frame writes, Witness is not only what we say, but what we are and do. Scripture does command us to preach, teach, teach proclaim, and so on, but not to witness. The reason, I think, is that God has already made us witnesses. We have no choice in the matter. He does not command us to be witness because, witnesses because we already are. We can witness truly or falsely, but we cannot avoid witnessing. So, this plays out in the New Testament. If you turn to like Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And, Shauna, could you read that one? For us when you get there, Matthew five thirteen through 16. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm sorry, I meant 13 through 16. I might have misspoke. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Oh, I, I was reading verse 5 from chapter 5. Sorry. That was my bad. Uh, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It has been good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And now all the yous in there are plural, not singular. Now, I don't say that to deny that we as individuals need to witness. Next week we'll look partially at how we individually witness and how we as a church witness. But notice here, you are a city set on a hill. Like witnesses, people may look up at the city on the hill and go, I don't want to live in that city. Well, that city looks just like the city I have down here. Or they may look up and go, wow, what's different about those people up there? You know, again, but we are witnessing. And I bring this up because often when we talk about evangelism, we mean one person going and talking. And that's very true. I'm not denying that. But as Mark Dever says, our lives together as church communities are the confirming echo of our witness. You know, I know people even who won't come to our church because they have in various ways interacted with someone and they go, I know what they're like when they're not here and I don't want to go. You know, that, that person, intentionally or unintentionally, was a witness. They witnessed that they act one way here on Sunday and they act a different way the rest of the week. And this person goes, well, I don't want to go be with those hypocrites. And that's probably happened in lots of churches. But when we are the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill that's distinct, then people go, oh, what, what is going on there? First um, Peter chapter 3, probably some of you could quote this, but we'll turn there. First Peter chapter 3, Paul's talking to them and he's telling them to live in some pretty radical ways. And then it says something interesting first peter chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 ashley could you read that for us please yes please and so here we have presumably an unbeliever and a believer Who's asking the questions? Well, could be, but in this case, who asked the question? Yeah, what's the question the unbeliever asked? Yeah, what's your hope? And we could back up, and we just talked about suffering for good, talked about returning evil with good, talked about submitting to authorities, and basically he's talking about living a radical life. And then, what is the response that the people around go, why did you show respect to him? I know how he treats you all the time. Why did you pick up your neighbor's trash when I see all the ways he treats you? Why have you been faithful to your spouse when I have heard over the fence how they talk to you? Let me tell you about the hope that's within me and again i don't think this is all that the new testament is saying we're look more next week how we evangelize but i think we need to back up and realize that first we should live distinctly our churches should look different than the world so that people are asking us questions going how do you why do you look so different from everyone else and jim wallace writes 
Evangelism in our day has largely become a packaged production, a mass-market experience in which evangelists strain to answer that question, which nobody is asking. When the life of the church no longer raises any questions, evangelism degenerates. You know, his point is, if we're not living any distinct way from the rest of the world, and they're not having to stop and go, that doesn't make sense. I know how I'm told y'all act, but you act way more lovingly and kindly and generously than I would have thought. When they're no longer asking questions, then you've got to come up with all these techniques and manipulations and marketing. And yet the witness is our lives. You know, another angle on this is to remember again Matthew 28, 18 through 20, discipleship. We're called to go into the world to make disciples. And that applies to all of us. So we're all called to make disciples. In that, our role may look slightly different. You know, you could use an analogy. Sarah and I are called to provide for our children. But that doesn't necessarily look the same. You know, in our home, that means I bring money home, and she uses that money to buy food and clothes or whatever. But no one would say, well, she cares about the children. Jeremy doesn't. Or vice versa. You know, we both care. And so in a local church, we should all care about discipleship, meaning evangelism and edification. But that may look different. Some of us may have roles where we barely ever get to interact with unbelievers. But we don't need to feel guilty about that. You know, we might be able to provide things that allow others the more upfront way to interact with unbelievers. You know, if we back up, the ultimate goal is to love others, Christ said. Well, we love them by caring about all of their life, and the most significant part of their life is their relationship to God. So if I love them, then I'm going to want to talk to them about those things. And I bring that up because, I don't know about you, but the topic of evangelism, as one former pastor said, is right up there with giving that always in prayer makes people feel guilty. And so people can go from this and go, okay, i got to go evangelize. i got to go share the gospel with someone And then in your guilt, you go find someone tomorrow and have some weird, awkward conversation because, whew, I know pastor reminded me yesterday I'm supposed to be an evangelist. haven't done that in a while. Check. Whew. Won't hear that that topic again in church for a while. I'm good. But that's not the call. The call is to love people. And so we don't force these weird, artificial conversations as we love them, opportunities will arise where it's natural to say, hey, you're going through something tough. Can I share with you what has helped me through my dark times? And they may say no. Or they may go, sure. Well, it's Christ. He's my hope. And so hopefully your response is not, okay, this week, got to find someone. They are my target. Now, that'd be great if you could find someone. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But don't be led by guilt be led by love. Love for that person. That They are made in God's image and they are going to have to stand before God and they will face an eternal judgment one way or the other. And if you love them, eventually you want to know where they stand with the Lord and care for them in that way. Uh, we're getting near the end though, so I normally try to ask more questions. Sorry. Uh, why is it true that everyone is a witness? Okay. How can we not turn off the I'm a witness right now? Why is that impossible? Because everyone wants 
Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, if you grow up in Christ, then you're either being a good example of his love or a bad example. I mean, and sometimes, you know, minute to minute. <laughs> so I think, I know what I think. But should everyone, does this mean everyone should go door to door? Does this mean people shouldn't go door to door? No, that might be a great approach. You may feel compelled to that. Our church may or may not. But, again, we're not aiming for a certain approach, but a certain lifestyle of love, a lifestyle of discipleship, wanting to see evangelism and edification happen in people's lives. Are any other comments as we wrap up? Next week we'll get into some how-tos. Introspection to your relationship with Christ that should hopefully drive your actions not out of compulsion but as a true desire to be to be faithful. Yeah. All right. Well, you're dismissed.